Today's message I'm, I want to share with you is in three parts. It's got part one, which is kind of a prologue. It's an introduction section. I hope it will set the stage for the message. Part two is the message, um, which I'm going to title Three Keys to Spiritual Influence. And then at the end, part, the, the third part is an, kind of an epilogue, which I want to give some closure, maybe tie up some loose ends on what I say in the message. So <clears throat> to start with in the prologue, everything we do at Silver Creek Fellowship is filtered through a focus of our vision statement, together discovering God's dream for our lives. We're a purpose-driven church. We have a biblical purpose. God's put us together for two basic things that Jesus talked about. The first, the great commandment, Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus said, the most important thing, love God and love people. In fact, he says everything else in the Bible is meant to amplify these two points. Love God, love others. The second statement is the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he says, go and make disciples. Literally, make followers or committed students. Our mandate at Silver Creek is to love God, to love people, to make disciples. That's God's assignment. So we have some specific ways that we do that. The way that we love God, one of the ways we come together and worship these songs that we've been singing and the prayers that we offer and the scriptures that we read are to celebrate God, His presence with us, what He's done for us and what He continues to do. The way we express our love for people is through ministry. Ministry is really just love and action. And, and the second way that we um, love people is through fellowship. We get together and we rejoice with them. Discipleship is, is where we learn the teachings of Jesus and we learn how to put them into practice in our life. And evangelism is how we communicate the gospel with other people. When it comes to disciples, you can actually summarize, summarize Jesus' approach in making disciples in three steps. This is really basic. This is what Jesus did. The first step in making disciples is to bring them in. You might write that down. Bring them in. Make disciples is always about reaching people. Jesus started a movement by reaching people who were far away from God. Jesus went after the lost. He went after the marginalized. <clears throat> and when he was going after people, he always saw the potential in them to be world changers. When Jesus invited the disciples to follow him, right away he told them what the goal would be. You remember when he first called his first disciples? He said, follow me and I will what? I'll make you fishers of men. <clears throat> so the first step to bring them in, follow me, he actually brought them in and connected them with a ministry of disciple-making. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. God wants his lost children found. So a disciple-making church ought to be a place where lost people are continually being invited and encouraged and brought in. The second thing is to build them up. Bring them in first, build them up second. Making disciples is about teaching people to be more like Jesus. 
The goal is to help move people from being an untrained seeker to a fully trained disciple. The building stage that Jesus has is to be intentional. It's strategic. Jesus modeled for them what he wanted them to be, and he modeled for them what he wanted them to do. If you're serious about making disciples, then you've got to teach people how to live and how to love like Jesus did. Discipling means taking those you've reached, building them up by teaching them how to live and how to love like Jesus. So bring them in, build them up. The third thing, send them out. Jesus didn't make disciples just for them to stay in a safe place. Too often, the church thinks of itself as a safe place, kind of a holy huddle where we just kind of all get together and keep, keep the world out and be safe. But from the very first, Jesus said, I'm going to send them out. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus' goal was for his disciples to reach lost people and to make more disciples. That's the essence of what it means to be a disciple-making church. Bring them in, build them up, send them out to make more disciples. So this is just my kind of editorial opinion. When it comes to loving God and loving people, I think most Christians do pretty okay with that. I mean, we could always do better, but I think we're kind of okay with it. But when it comes to evangelism, I think it's kind of a different story. Most of us find evangelism to be somewhat difficult. And I think it's because the models of evangelism that we've been exposed to have been, well, I've been, I've been challenging. Kind of sometimes we see it as in-your-face confrontational. I got a picture of a man on the street. Um, <clears throat> this is what a lot of people think evangelists do. They, you know, they just tell people, repent, you're going to hell, go and, you know, turn to Jesus or go to hell. So street corner preachers, they got a turn or burn message, and, um, and that maybe another kind of evangelism that you were trained in, I was trained in this, I was trained to ask people the big question evangelism. If you died today, stood before the Lord, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And I found the idea of walking up to perfect strangers and asking them the big question to be kind of challenging, because this is what I found out. My experience is most strangers don't really want to consider the idea of dying today. It puts them off right away. If you were to die today, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. And so sometimes we're put off because of the intensity. Or maybe you think evangelism is done by a guy like this. Here's Billy Graham. He's he's like the, the, the best living evangelist, or he's not living now, but the best evangelist in our time. Did you know that Billy Graham preached to live audiences over 210 million people in more than 185 countries. Billy Graham was awesome. He would get up in front of people and preach these amazing messages. But do you know what the number one fear for most Americans is? The number one fear. Over 25% of people say the biggest fear is speaking in front of other people. The Billy Graham model of evangelism isn't for everybody. It's just for a, a limited, gifted few. 25%, the biggest fear is um, speaking in front of people. 8% of people are afraid of clowns. Maybe you're cautious about sharing the gospel because you feel you don't have the right answers to the questions people might have. Maybe you're afraid that, you know, if you tried to share 
your faith in Christ, people would ask you, if there really is a God, why is there suffering? Or if the church has the truth, why are there so many people in the church that are hypocrites? Or maybe even more complicated, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And you're afraid, I don't have the answer to those questions. I've, I've been a Christian for all of my life. I, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at a very young age. I was baptized when I was seven years old. In all the years <clears throat> that I've been a Christian, I've gone through many, many, many different evangelism training programs. The very first one I can remember was called Key 73. It was in 1973, kind of a catchy name for that year. <clears throat> it was a time when the Jesus, Jesus People movement was going, the charismatic renewal in mainline churches was red hot. The goal of Key 73 was to knock on every door of every home in North America with a witness to Christ. Key 73 resulted in the distribution of 35 million Bibles and in the formation of 50,000 new small group Bible studies. Kathy and I were newly married in 1973. We joined one of those Bible study small groups, and actually, we've been in a Bible study small group ever since then. In 1976, Campus Crusade for Christ launched the I Found It campaign. Bumper stickers and billboards were plastered everywhere with the I Found It message. A few weeks later, the message was followed up with evangelistic tracts that says, here's how you can find it too. There was a phone number to call so that you could discover that the it that you could find was a new life in Jesus Christ. Today, there's a new version of I Found It. It's a campaign underway. It's called He Gets Us. They've, you've probably seen their ads on television if you watch sports events at all. The campaign portrays Jesus as an immigrant, a refugee, a radical, an activist. <clears throat> the tagline is, whatever you're facing, Jesus faced it too. He gets us. I, I guess they've they spent about $100 million on advertising, and there's two big ads scheduled for next week's Super Bowl. <clears throat> one, one of the videos that the He Gets This campaign has put out is called The Rebel. has had 122 million views on YouTube. It's, it's an amazingly big program. Over church history, many, many people have been involved in evangelism training programs. Our church has done the master's plan for evangelism, Alpha, Evangelism Explosion. And this is what I found about them. They're all good. They're all wonderful. And they've all been somewhat effective. But I want to suggest to you a couple things. Number one, effective evangelism is more often caught than taught. It's more often caught than taught. And the second thing, effective evangelism is more about influence than answers. It's more about influence and answers. When it comes to your mind, I want to talk to you today about influence. And so here's where we're going to think about this whole area, because I think there's a couple big problems with influence. As Christians, when we try to influence our communities, I think there's two big problems. And the first big problem is we send the wrong message. There's really three parts to communication, what you mean to say what you actually say, and what people hear. Oftentimes, we try to share what we believe with others. It's not what we say that causes the problem. It's what they hear. Let me drive this point home just a little bit. If you were to go downtown Silverton and do a man-on-the-street interview, and you ask people to tell you what they thought about Christians, what do you think they'd say? Do you think they say 
Christians are the most loving, gracious, caring people on the planet? You think that would be the answer that you would get from them, the man on the street in Silverton? I don't think you would. These are not the images that people have of Christians anymore. In fact, if, if you were to be honest, I think people would say, just a lot of people would say about the opposite. Uh, when you ask someone who's not a Christian to tell you what they think Christians who are, people who are Christians think, they'll often say they're angry, they're judgmental, they're against everything. See, many non-Christians think you, as a Christian, are mad at them. Years ago, when we went to the Billy Graham crusade in Portland, we took buses up from Silverton, and the buses all had to park in a, in a parking area that was quite a ways away from the crusade, and we had to walk several blocks, and as we walked those blocks, we walked through a whole area that had signs up and yellow tape and yellow ribbon that all said, hate-free zone. Signs were all over the place, hate-free zone. These people thought that Christians were hate-filled, self-righteous people. They had, they, had, they had the idea that Christians were people who were looking down on them, that people were looking down their nose at them. I, I thought I was kind of foolish because this is what I think. If you're a Christian, you're like a person who's had cancer but have been cured. You had a fatal disease, but you've been cured. Why would you look down on anybody else who hasn't been cured yet? You've got good news. <clears throat> See, I think a lot of non-Christians either fail to hear our message or Christians sometimes send a mixed message. I think non-Christians sometimes listen to our conversations and they think our goal is to get everyone to live and vote and think like they do, like we do. See, it's important that we don't get off message. The message we've been given is to share the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save us. For unto you is born this day a what? Help me. Unto you is born a what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And His plan is to change us from the inside out. But so often we try to change people from the outside in. Live right, vote right, act right, clean up your act and get right. No, that's not our message. Our message is this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it continues. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So, we oftentimes send the wrong message. We send the message that we're mad at non-Christians, that God's mad at them, <clears throat> The second thing that we often lack is urgency. We, we have a lack of urgency. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus made that radical statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, <clears throat> do you think he meant it? Is it true? Is, it, no one, is there another way to God except through Jesus Christ? Do you think that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus is true? Because if it is, that would have implications, wouldn't it? I mean, if it's true, it, it, it should give us a sense of urgency. That should promote us to, to feel like if there's no other way through Jesus Christ, then we better get busy telling people that message. Okay, that's the end of the prologue. Kind of long, wasn't it? So here's the message. Three keys to spiritual influence. I want to look at 1 Peter 2, 
verses 11 and 12, because I think Peter's got some answers for us. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. See, our, our final home is somewhere else. We're, we're aliens and strangers here. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now notice he tells us what to do. Live such good lives among the pagans. Pagans, it's kind of a negative word, but it just, it just means people who don't know God. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you want to be an influence for God, this is what Peter says. Write this down, the first key. Live a good life. Peter says, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. It's very hard to have spiritual influence if you don't have a life that has integrity in it, that has morality in it. My morality and my integrity earn me the right to be heard. How many of you ever known someone who was a hypocrite who, who said one thing and did the other? If you knew somebody like that, is that the person that you would go to and say, tell me how to live a good life? No, you wouldn't go to them. You don't want to hear anything from a hypocrite. How many of you want a hypocrite to tell you how to live a good life? I'd guess none of us do. Actually, we write the things off that they say. The starting point of having spiritual influence is actually live a good life, clean up your act. Peter says, abstain from sinful desires. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not talking about a list of man-made rules. When I was young, it was the length of the hair that we had and the clothes we wore. We were told that as Christians, we needed to guard the way we looked and dressed. We were told that if we had long hair or the wrong kind of clothes, it was a symbol of rebellion. What is it today? I don't know. Maybe it's the saggy pants that you wear when and your underwear shows. Um, long hair, short hair, baggy pants, tattoos, piercings. These are all external things, and they're always changing. The list that we had last year is different than the list that we have this year. Kathy's mom thought the Beatles were terrible. I think I got a picture of them. Look at these terrible guys. It suits and ties. I, I had a picture of Jeff and I each at about this age, and I was too embarrassed to put them up. Our hair, our hair was much longer than the Beatles' hair at this time. I mean, have you ever been to Amish country? If you went to Amish country, let me ask you, did you go as a tourist or did you go as a seeker of truth? My guess is you went as a tourist. You, you heard they had good food and they made fine furniture and they farmed with workhorses. But going to see the Amish in Amish country, it was a little like going to the zoo. You didn't go with the idea, I want to be like that. You went with the idea that these people are kind of unusual. They're interesting. But those who, who came to Jesus a little later in life, I don't think you came into the kingdom of God saying, I just can't wait to find the list of rules that I need to live by. Because that's, that's the, the reality. That's how non-Christians often look to us and our rules. They, they think that we're just kind of like some weird, unusual species at the zoo. So don't confuse your good life, your, your morality, with a list of legalistic rules. It used to be I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't hang out with girls who do. Well, I know I'm, maybe I'm stepping on a couple toes here, but let me just 
Help me out. In the Bible, are the Pharisees the good guys or the bad guys? Help me. Are the Pharisees the good guys or the bad guys? They were the religious guys, but they were the bad guys. The word Pharisee literally means separated ones. They had the idea that God has laws, but actually we need to go a little further. One more thing about living the good life. If you're not living it, then just stop talking about it. Because you hurt the rest of us big time. If you're always mad, if you're always slandering or gossiping, if you're always hitting the bottle a little too much and everyone knows it, if you're cheating on tests or unfaithful to your spouse, or if you're in total rebellion to authority, like to your parents or telling dirty jokes at work, if that's you, when people start to talk about spiritual things, just be quiet. Don't, don't miss what I'm saying. What, what I mean is this, shut up. And if you can't shut up, then tell them you're a Hindu or something. But for goodness sake, don't put a fish sticker on your car and pretend that you're a Christian. Here's another thing I'll just throw in for good measure. This is extra. If you pray before eating a meal at a restaurant, leave a big tip. If you identify yourself as a Christian, then act like a Christian. Be generous. Here's what I'm trying to say. Don't make good statements that aren't backed up by a good life. The second key, first one's a good life. The second key is good deeds. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Good deeds are different than a good life. A good life is filled with character and integrity. A good life is marked by biblical morality, abstaining from evil things and doing good things. But good deeds are different. We would, we would call these maybe acts of kindness. A good deed is doing something really that you don't have to do. A good deed is something that's above and beyond the call of duty. Maybe it's a little above, or maybe it's way above. The kind of things that cause people to say, wow, they didn't have to do that. That was really gracious. Good deeds are important because you can have the most theologically correct understanding of the Bible. You, you could actually be the Bible answer man. And you could have outstanding morality and purity. But if you don't have good deeds, who cares? Let me, let me ask you, why were people attracted to Jesus? Think about it for a minute. Did they flock to him because he was the most theologically correct person that they'd ever heard? Did they come to him because of his perfection and his incredible morality? Matthew 9 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Acts 10.38 and you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all those under the power of the devil because God was with him. 
Jesus went around doing good before people began flocking to him. He would, he would follow the good deeds. He would do acts of kindness. Because when you do that, it silences our critics. Let me, let me ask you a question. Does our Mission of Hope Food Bank help us or hurt us in the eyes of the community? It helps us. Why? Because when you do good deeds, it proves something to people. One more thing about good deeds. If you're going to have spiritual influence, then good deeds must be related to your faith. I mean, I see people all the time on, who are on board with organizations that are doing really good things, wonderful things, but there's no faith at all involved. I'd recommend that you look around for places to serve in the name of Jesus, that your acts of kindness, your acts of compassion are done in the name of Jesus. Good life, good deeds. The third key, if you're going to have influence, is good answers. If I live a, if I live a good life and if I do good deeds, then I've got to be ready to give some good answers. Don't let there be a disconnect. When people say, why are you doing this? Then you must have an answer. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have. Not always be prepared to give an answer to the tricky questions people ask. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. Be prepared to tell people why you believe what you believe about Jesus. But he goes on. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So right words have a right attitude. The truth must, the truth must be conveyed to people, but it has to be given to them with gentleness and respect. You might, you might just file this principle away in your brain. Everything I share must be shared with gentleness and respect. You know, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, speak the truth, but he gave them a context to speak it in. Speak the truth in love, he said. Two years ago on Serve Day, we did a free car wash. A lot of people pulled their cars in to have them, them wash. <clears throat> and there was a very common question. Why are you doing this? You know what most people thought the reason was? You know what most people thought the reason for a free car wash was? To raise money. See, they thought we, that we had a crafty plan of reverse psychology. We would put a sign up that says, free car wash, but that what was behind it was really, give us some of your money to wash your car. No, the real reason was this. We're just trying to show the love of God in practical ways. So the three things that I've shared with you are the main part of the message. Live a good life, do good deeds, give good answers. I wonder if there's an area of your life that needs a little work. Maybe you need a little work on living a good life. Or maybe your good deeds are coming up a little bit on the short side. Or maybe you're intimidated and you haven't really got any answers. Is there anything in your morality that you need to work on? Is there any place where you could do more to share love and acts of kindness? Are you ready to share the truth about Jesus? Amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Okay, that's the end of the preach of the message, but here's the epilogue. I'll tie this up a little bit. There, there's some things I don't want you to forget. 
If you're going to have influence, if you're going to lead people toward Jesus, here's some things I don't want you to forget. Number one, there are no magic bullets. When it comes to sharing with others, I think we, like, I think we always think there's got to be a right way. Maybe I could memorize the Roman road, or maybe I could learn to pray the prayer that Billy Graham prayed. When I was a kid, I liked to watch old horror movies. In those old horror movies, I learned that a silver bullet was one of the very few weapons that was effective against werewolves, vampires, and witches. Actually, the best silver bullet was if you could get a crucifix, a silver crucifix, melt it down, and make your bullets out of that, they, they would take care of any of the bad guys. And sometimes we get this idea, if I could just get the, the gospel silver bullets, and if I could get them in my gospel gun, that when I would shoot it, it always would be effective. So, see, it doesn't work that way. God has determined that people can't be argued into the kingdom. God has left it up to people on their own to decide. So you can't beat yourself up when what you shared doesn't get immediate results. If you're living a good life, and if you're doing good deeds, and you're giving good answers, that's all you can do. The rest is up to God. That's the way He's designed it. Think about this. Even Jesus didn't get through to everybody. I mean, catch this about Jesus. Mark 6, verse 4. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Jesus had a perfect life. He did perfect deeds. He had perfect answers. And yet, that didn't convince everybody. In fact, it didn't even convince his own family. Jesus had doubters in his own family. So if Jesus had some doubters with the life he lived and the answers he had and the deeds he did, you're going to have some people that are not ready immediately to go follow what you're telling them either. No silver bullets. Second thing, it's impossible to have impact without contact. One of the biggest criticisms of Jesus, you know what it was? He hung out with sinners. Matthew 9, verse 10. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. <clears throat> if you separate yourself from sinners, you will have zero impact for the gospel. When you boycott unbelievers, you lose any influence you might have ever had. It doesn't mean you join them in their sin. Don't, don't miss what I'm saying. You must separate your life from sin as best you can. But you can't separate yourself from sinners. I mean, we live in a world that's filled with sinners. We can't separate ourselves from that. There's a time to isolate yourself and to isolate your children from sinners when you're weak, when you're vulnerable. But as we mature, we must be committed to engage with unbelievers. We, is get the, we isolate when we are weak. We infiltrate when we are strong. We don't have time today to study the lives of Daniel and Joseph. These two men live godly lives in a godless society, 
and they had a tremendous impact. It's impossible to have impact without contact. Number three, come and see is more effective than shut up and listen. John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> Nazareth? Can anybody, anything good come from there, Nathanael asked? Come and see, said Philip. Now, Nathanael was really put off by Philip's enthusiasm. He knew that Nazareth was a place that had a bad reputation. He knew that it was pretty unlikely that the promised Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth. He was sure it'd be like Jerusalem or some other prominent city. He, but, but he knew it would not be in a place like Nazareth. So Philip is wise enough not to argue about it with him. What does he do? He gently invites his friend to come and meet Jesus. Come and see, said Philip. This is what Philip knew. Philip knew that when Nathanael saw what he had seen, the questions would be resolved. Come and see. Don't try to argue people into the kingdom. Come and see. Invite people. Number four, no one can argue with our story. John 9 gives the account of the healing of a man who was born blind. There was a big argument going on about the reason for the man's blindness. So it was the opinion of some he was born blind because his parents had led a sinful life. Other people thought maybe he had committed some sin of his own. But when Jesus was there, he said it wasn't either one. He said the man was born blind so that God would be glorified in his healing. And he healed the man, which caused an even bigger uproar to the point where accusations started being made about Jesus that he's practicing witchcraft. So the man who'd been healed, that man who'd been born blind, they brought him in to share his opinion. This is what it says, John 9, 25. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. See, so what this guy said, I don't understand all the theological questions going on here. I don't know all the implications. I'm not sure how it all happened. I don't know why. This is what I know. I was blind. Now I can see. Friends, who could argue with that? When you tell your story about what God's done in your life, nobody can argue with your story. When you tell people that he set me free from this, or I found a new peace of mind, or I found this, people can't argue with that. They can't argue with your story. Number five, God wants his enemy won over and not wiped out. Too often, <clears throat> religious people think that God is mad at people and he wants to blast them off the planet and send them to hell. But that's not the God we serve. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God doesn't like to see people <clears throat> missing the mark. God doesn't like seeing people separated for all eternity. He's not happy about that. What makes God happy is when people turn from their way, when they repent, and they live. Remember that verse I read earlier that I said was our purpose, John 3.16? God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him, what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but save the world through him. <clears throat> God didn't need to send Jesus to point out our faults. All of us know that we don't measure up. Friends, I don't even measure up to my own standards. 
let alone God's righteous standard. God tells us the wages of sin is death, and that's what I deserve. But the free gift of God is everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants His enemies won over and not wiped out. I, I want to encourage you. That's the end. I want to encourage you. I'll ask the band to come back. I should have asked it before now. <clears throat> to actually think about the influence you have. Where has God put you? At your work, in your family, in your school? I want you to be aware that people are watching you. And the only thing that they're really going to know about Jesus for many people is what they see in you. They're not going to church. They're not hearing the Word of God preached. They're just watching you. You're the key to it. Lord Jesus, your plan is pretty simple. That we would live such good lives that people would see what you've done they would see that you had saved us from our sins and sanctified us, called us to a new life. And then you sent us out to share the good news with our friends and our neighbors. Let your Holy Spirit come and empower us to do the work that you want us to do. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.